Hey everybody, thank you for joining me. Hope your weekend is going well. All right, so this week, the bellicosity in the uh, Ukraine crisis increased. Vladimir Putin, in his speech uh, announcing an expansion of the war, issued a threat, uh, thinly veiled, to use nuclear weapons if Russia's territorial integrity is threatened. And the question hanging over that is, will that Russian territorial integrity also mean uh, these areas of Ukraine that are right now voting in referendums to uh, whether or not to join Russia as they're expected to, and they're, and they're expected to overwhelmingly, to overwhelmingly approve uh, this question and then join Russia. So, so the question then is, if these areas were attacked by Ukraine uh, or its allies, could Russia in that situation use nuclear weapons? I don't think that's what Putin meant, but that certainly was how it was interpreted. And now the U.S. is responding uh, with Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, saying today that there would be catastrophic consequences if Russia uses nuclear weapons. And, um, you know, for their part, the Zelensky government told The Guardian that the U.S. and other nuclear powers should pledge, quote, swift retaliatory nuclear strikes to destroy the nuclear launch sites in Russia, unquote, uh, if Russia, quote, even thinks of carrying out nuclear strikes uh, in Ukraine. And that was a pretty striking statement because Ukraine isn't saying that the West should use nukes against Russia if Russia uses nukes first. They're saying they should do so if Russia even thinks of carrying out nuclear strikes first. And it's unclear who will do the mind reading of Russia's nuclear thoughts. That that part of it is left unexplained. But the point here is that the nuclear threats are even higher than before. Rhetoric is increasing. And there is no diplomacy right now. And uh, to underscore this, in his speech, Putin said something that got almost no attention in U.S. media. It, it was widely ignored, uh, with one exception, which I'll get to in a second. But Putin said, uh, and we've talked about this before, here and elsewhere, where he, for the first time, referenced an episode that was reported in which uh, back in March and April, Ukraine and Russia reached some sort of outline of a peace deal. But then it was alleged, and I'll get more into that in a second, that the West basically sabotaged that agreement. And that's been reported before elsewhere, but today for the first time, Putin, uh, but this week for the first time, Putin commented on this, and this is what he said. Oh, oops, one second. Let me set that up. Here we go. And I want to say that publicly for the first time, after the start of the special military operation, also at the Istanbul negotiations, um, uh, there was a very positive reaction to our proposals concerning ensuring the security of Russia. But it was obvious that the West was not happy with a peaceful decision. So after reaching certain compromises, they effectively were given a direct um, order to undermine the negotiations. So that's Putin saying uh, this week, for the first time uh, that he said it, that the U.S. ordered, uh, or the U.S. and its allies, uh, ordered Zelensky to wreck a peace deal that Russia and Ukraine had agreed on uh, back in March and April.
Now, Putin didn't offer any additional detail and didn't offer any evidence, but notably, he is not the first person to make this claim. And in fact, this claim originates with Zelensky's camp. Uh, back in May, sources close to Zelensky told the Ukrainian outlet um, Ukraine Pravda that there was progress in negotiations between Ukraine and Russia, but that was halted after Boris Johnson visited Kiev in April and told Zelensky that Putin should not be negotiated with, he should be pressured, and that the battle in Ukraine was turning and this was an opportunity to really press Putin. I read that as an opportunity to get him overthrown inside Russia. And Johnson all reportedly told Zelensky that even if you sign an agreement with Russia, that the West will not back it up, will not provide you with any security guarantees. And that basically would have made any deal with Russia worthless because if Ukraine can't get security guarantees from the West, then any kind of peace agreement with Russia ending the war would be useless. And so that sabotaged the deal and it was over. And that report got sort of new relevance this month when Fiona Hill, who is a former White House expert, reported in Foreign Affairs that, yes, U.S. officials knew that in April there was a broad outline on an agreement between Ukraine and Russia in which Ukraine would basically declare neutrality uh, and, and pledge not to join NATO and Russia would withdraw to its pre-invasion position. And uh, here is Vladimir Putin essentially now adding a new claim on top of that, or adding a new uh, voice to bolster that previous reporting. Now, I put Putin's claims to the U.S. government. Uh, I approached the White House National Security Council and the State Department. And I wrote about this today in an article I just published on my Substack, which is called Russia says U.S. wrecked Ukraine talks, but peace is still possible. It's linked in the show notes for this episode if you want to read it. Um, and I got differing responses. The uh, official with the National Security Council uh, told me that, um, well, first of all, for comment, for specific comment, I should approach the Ukrainian government on what happened in the spring. But overall, this official told me, quote, it is inaccurate that the U.S. discouraged Ukraine from seeking a peace agreement. Throughout this conflict, we have said that it's up to Ukraine to make their own sovereign decisions. Now, in that comment, there's some wiggle room, because even when the official says it is inaccurate that the U.S. discouraged Ukraine from seeking a peace agreement, uh, that might mean that, uh, that or, or that doesn't mean that Boris Johnson did not go to Ukraine and discourage them from seeking a peace agreement on the U.S.'s behalf. Uh, because as we know, the U.S. often uses the U.K. to pursue its geopolitical aims. We remember that from the Iraq war when the U.K. was subcontracted to put out the Daji uh, dossier about Iraq being 45 minutes away from, uh, you know, attacking the West with uh, weapons of mass destruction. And during this war, too, when the U.S. got the U.K. to make claims about Russia before the invasion that the U.S. came up with, but just wanted to make it look as if it came from from the U.K. Uh, so, but, but at the same time, you know, I should note that this official is issuing somewhat of a, of, of a denial because they are saying that it's inaccurate that the U S discouraged Ukraine from seeking a peace agreement. So I think that's significant that this official said that the state department though gave me a different reaction and the state department did not address anything that Putin said. Uh, instead, they referred to the diplomacy that took place before the invasion. 
recall that Putin's comment was about diplomacy after the invasion. And this is what the State Department said. Um, As part of our efforts to deter President Putin from launching a full-scale invasion of Ukraine's sovereign territory on February 24th, the U.S. consistently spoke of the only of the two paths Russia could choose, dialogue and diplomacy or escalation and massive consequences. We made genuine and sincere efforts to pursue the former, which we vastly preferred, but Putin chose war. And I found that response interesting because I wasn't asking them about the period before the invasion. I was asking them specifically to respond to Putin's comments after the invasion, in which he says a peace agreement was reached and it was sabotaged. And I found it Interesting that they didn't uh, offer a direct denial of that. And when I followed up with them to you know, see if they had any response to Putin's specific claim, I did not get a response. Now, of course, you know, it's possible that Putin is exaggerating what happened. It's possible that these talks weren't, didn't go as far as he says or that the other sources, uh, like those who spoke to Fiona Hill, have said. That's all possible. We don't know for sure. But I do think it's significant that at this point you have a lot of different sources saying relatively the same thing, Fiona Hill, Vladimir Putin, and sources close to Zelensky. Uh, That does say to me that at least some serious progress was made uh, in those weeks. And it was, um, for whatever reason, whether it was a direct order from Boris Johnson or not, it was abandoned. And the importance of reviving those talks now uh, has never been uh, more important. Now that you have Russia calling up hundreds of thousands of more people, to go and fight and die. And you have nuclear threats on all sides. Uh, This is a very, very frightening moment. Now, um, nobody in U.S. media reported Putin's allegation against the U.S., which I thought was so striking. Here you have the Russian president accusing the U.S. of sabotaging peace. Like, that's a very serious charge. But yet nobody appeared to notice, uh, or nobody thought it was worthy of mention, except for one person, and that is uh, surprisingly... David Ignatius, who's the uh, who's the chief Washington uh, foreign affairs columnist for the Washington Post, and Ignatius actually says that Putin's comment could be an off ramp to end the war, and he compared it to the message that the Soviet leader Khrushchev said to JFK during the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, which put both sides on a path to de-escalation. And Ignatius said, although it's unlikely, this could be a similar off ramp, and he also said. And I thought that this was interesting, that um, the Ukrainian government, quote, needs a reality check about its longer term battlefield prospects. And that's an interesting comment from somebody who's very well placed inside Washington, speaks to a lot of top officials, has a lot of high placed sources. That to me is is an indication that there's an awareness inside the beltway that militarily this war is not winnable for Ukraine. And Ukraine appears to have been acting under the illusion that it is. And to the extent that Ignatius represents the view of official Washington, perhaps that reality check will enter the White House as well. Although at the same time, their aim has never really been to defeat Russia and Ukraine. It's just been to bleed Russia and Ukraine and drag this war on for as long as possible. And, uh, for many reasons, foremost a threat to Ukrainians and Russians, but also to the rest of the world, the havoc that this is causing, economies being sacrificed, uh, especially, no, obviously, especially in Ukraine, but also Germany as well, which is continues to face a really difficult time because of this war. Uh, the need for diplomacy, as Ignatius proposes, 
um, by, you know, taking up Putin on his claim that talks once made progress, but were sabotaged is very, is very important, but we're not seeing anywhere right now. And by the way, we're not seeing anywhere from progressive Democrats at one point early, a few, you know, a month or so ago, Ro Khanna said one thing about who's a progressive lawmaker, uh, with, with the Democrats said, we, you know, what's our plan on the diplomatic front? He said that once. And he said, this war is causing global ha- havoc. Well, since then, there's been nothing from the Democrats calling for diplomacy, no resolutions, no letters sent to Biden saying, uh, what are you doing about diplomacy? Nothing. There is no organized political force in Washington right now calling for diplomacy. And I think if we all survive this moment, which, you know, I have to say is not a guarantee given the powers, the, the nuclear weapons involved, uh, the people who did not push for diplomacy, I think will be remembered for that and not remembered very fondly. Okay. That is my rant. Let's take some calls. Hello. Hi there. Hi. Hi. Um, well, I think, there's nobody really in Washington out loud calling for diplomacy. I mean, I don't know why it would be amazing that, or, you know, it would be surprising that this, that there was this admission that, you know, uh, the U.S. wasn't trying to go for diplomacy or peace. Everyone has already known that. I mean, you just said yourself that their, that their um, goal is to bleed the Soviet Union dry, not, and that is not winning the war i mean everyone has always known they can't win the war you know except maybe in the u.s i don't know they you know but they certainly do at the pentagon i mean you know henry kissinger called for them to you know that they were going to have to get realistic about negotiating some kind of settlement with this by by saying oh we're not you know we're going to just like pelosi and mcfall and all these people by saying they're going to you know, they refuse to accept anything less than the return of Crimea and the Donbass. That's like saying they're not going to negotiate because obviously that stuff is already gone, you know, especially Crimea. So by just making these maximalist, you know, um, goals before for negotiation, they're basically rejecting diplomacy. Um you know, I think the whole world knows that that Ukraine is not going to win this war. You know, they they put a lot of effort into you know and into um, into you know this counteroffensive to make you know to give something to keep it going, basically. But you know, it wasn't the success that they make it out to be in the papers in in the U.S. Also. Um, Putin has said over and over again what the only conditions that he would use nuclear weapons and is responding to a nuclear attack or a decapitation attack, which is to say if they came in with, you know, non-nuclear missiles, but, um, you know, try to decapitate all the, the, um, the, the, you know, authority in in the soviet union like yeah you tried to go for the whatever their military the right. you know putin their congress if they had some kind of attack like that where they tried to you know decapitate the government 
they might respond with nuclear weapons in that case because in that case they could do that and then send the nuclear weapons. So those are the only times he said that, and he said it over and over again when, when they would use nuclear weapons. So to say that it sounds very much like he's threatening nuclear attack, no, it doesn't. It's what he's probably threatening is that he's going to, you know, attack some of the U.S. advisors. You know, he's going to, they know where the, you know, the generals that are running the war in the U- from the U.S. are staying in Ukraine. He's talking about that, about. Right. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Kathy, thank you for the call. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Take, take care. Okay. Iggy. Hey, Aaron. Um, yeah. So we're regarding um, the British or U.S. involvement in the uh, talks, if you remember back in about um, late March, Ben Wallace, the UK Prime and, uh, Defense Secretary, was caught on tape by Vovan and Lexus. And in that tape, in that prank call, he mentioned that Britain was already preparing for a, for a later phase or the, or the next phase of the war, which he said involved potentially moving part of the British fleet into the Black Sea in a hyper-offensive manoeuvre. That tells you that even at that stage, the West was planning an escalation using their own military assets, which obviously was interrupted by the fact that that got leaked. That would suggest to me that it is um, disingenuous for the West to say that they weren't trying to screw around with um, negotiations. And if you look at who Zelensky is, he's not exactly a dyed-in-the-wool um, military expert nor political leader. He's a comedian who was backed by Igor Kol- Kolomoisky and paid into position essentially so what what when you when i look at what he's doing and what he's said um i would say that he's a little more than a puppet uh, being influenced by whomever and it'll, along come the west and say don't do this because we will we will essentially militarily back you i could easily see that as being the point at which he decides to take on this poor attempt at churchill because he's now backed by the full might of the propaganda machine of the west and all of the cash um so I don't buy the fact that uh, I don't buy any of the, 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 the Western statements because it doesn't match the clearly stated objectives of the West, which is to pump in loads of money and effectively execute a proxy war. As for um, Putin's statements about that people are saying means he is going to use nuclear weapons, it doesn't necessarily mean that. If you look at the quote, what he says is Russia has more modern weapons than NATO countries have. In the event of a threat to the territorial integrity of our country and to defend Russia and our people, we will certainly make use of all weapon systems available to us. This is not a bluff. So whether that's whether that's ramping up the increase of SU-57 fifth-gen fighters, which they're doing, whether that's using Kinzhal missiles air launch to give you strike strike threats against parts of, parts of Europe or all of Ukraine, um, that's one way of doing that. Or if you are if you are a holder of a nuclear backstop, you have to expect anyone to basically say, "Do not touch us or do not attack our territory." Otherwise, we will consider using everything. And there's, there's one thing I'll point out is that when you listen to analysts, Western analysts or Western commentators, what they often don't do is reference really in detail any of the. Um, Russian side. They never talk about the Russian MOD's reports of, of what they've been doing. They never talk about really Putin's stuff. I mean, you know, you're, you're taking the time to look at that statement, but many don't. Two people that are worth listening to are Scott Ritter and Douglas McGregor, because they talk mil- militarily from their experience of regime change 
and and the um, the um, what's the word um, non proliferation, and their point is quite different. They're saying that with the um, with the uh, referenda that they, they that is a mechanism to change the scope of the uh, special military operation and because those those territories will become mother russia that opens the pathway to a different nature of warfare because if anybody then attacks mother russian territory you're subjecting yourself to um, russia's already published nuclear strike um, doctrine which says uh, you, they will use nukes if somebody uses a nuke against them or if they face an existential threat against the Russian homeland. And that is the political, that is what Ritter and I think even McGregor cites as the political outcome of the referendum. It means that they can then say uh, it's a greater threat, if you like, essentially to, to continue to attack any of the former oblasts of Donetsk or the LPR. You're actually not attacking the DPR or LPR anymore. You're actually attacking Russia. And that is basically putting the escalation threat back into the camp of the West, if you see what I mean. Yeah, thank you for that explanation. I uh, I do listen to Scott Ritter and Doug McGregor, and um, I think uh, your breakdown of what Putin was talking about makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting, you know, Biden said on the campaign trail, Something that along the lines of that he would uh, pledge not to use nuclear weapons first, but he, he, he that he would declare no first use or something along those lines, and he didn't in his uh, nuclear strategy. It's pretty much the exact same thing as Trump, and he even said that the U.S. would consider using uh, nuclear weapons, you know, not just in response to another nuclear attack, but in extreme circumstances where the interests of our allies, our partners, is threatened. And uh, that could mean Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine is a partner. So it's um, the way that the nuclear issue is discussed where it's just, you know, Putin issuing bellicose threats to, to blow up the world, you know, does not reflect the reality of, of both sides' positions. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't even, I'm not even sure that it's technically that he is threatening to blow up the world. I mean, you know, I don't think that that's really that fair to, 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 to go that far, but because he has no, he has in a way, he, he, neither side have any choice in, you have to be, um, if for your nuclear backs up to work, it has to exist. And then people have to believe that you might use them in some circumstance. And if you, if people don't believe one or the other, you don't have a nuclear backstop. So the, the rhetoric is always going to be this. But an interesting point about what you said as well about um, is this is is this word in a is this line in the, in the speech a, a way out? Um, Ritter points out that when you look at the um, the Turk, the Cuban missile crisis, his characterization of it is that it was poorly uh, described because really what was going on was it happened because the U.S. put missiles into Turkey, and then the whole conversation ultimately resolved around okay, you take them out of Turkey, we'll take them out of Cuba. And that wasn't really that well represented because mostly it is has been uh, represented as a wind down by JFK that got it out of Cuba. But people don't talk about Turkey, so it's possible what you what Ignatius is saying is possible. But I know this sounds a little bit strange, but the fact that he might be calling out and saying, "Hey, is that is that Putin offering orange branch?" and he says that in public, could actually be a means by which you undermine 
the possibility of that olive branch ever being there because you kind of have, have almost called it out in public. So if things get wound back on that basis, you'll then later on say, see, he was never, he, he was always a coward and he was always having to have a way out, if you see what I mean. Right. All right. All right, Iggy, thank you for the call. Thank you. All right. Greg. Hello there. Hi there. You know, I was going to talk about the nuclear saber rattling, but, you know, Russia and the Kremlin has been doing that constantly since the beginning of the war. Uh, to dismiss it that way is silly, you know. But um, what was my point going to be? Um, you know, they take this quote by Putin about the peace talks. You know, there's a way that the war could end, you know, there's a way it would get peace. And that would be for Russia to take all their troops out of Ukraine and stop the war. And like to seize on this stupid quote by Putin as if we should listen to anything he says when they've been doing this war now for how many months against Ukraine and the horrible <laughs> devastation that it has caused throughout Europe with like 7 million refugees outside of the country, like 7 million internally displaced, the carpet bombings of Mariupol, the atrocities, the forced deportations. You know, there was this, they, they emptied out orphanages and shipped the kids to Russia. This is the, this is the, this is the tactics that Russia's using. And I, I think, you know, all this like, oh, we should have, uh, we should listen to Putin. There was a peace deal. Okay, Putin, why don't you do your own peace deal now and take all your troops out? Okay, well, that's not, unfortunately not how peace deals work. And let me ask you, Greg, what would you have done to resolve the Donbass war that was happening in the eight years before Russia invaded, where, you know, according to the UN, some 14,000 people were killed? What would have been your solution there? Because, you know, in saying that, you know, Russia just needs to withdraw, there are people inside the Donbass who have been living under Ukrainian shelling for eight years who don't want Russia to withdraw. And they actually, um, they're, some of them are voting now to join Russia. So, so what oh would you say God. to them? Well, it's oh, my true. God. It's true. Oh, so my what would God. You, You're so citing how... fake referendums in well, occupied territories during a time of war, a, okay. clear, a clear violation of every, what every would international you have done? law. What would you have wait, done wait, 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 what wait. You You're supporting no, these referendums. Wait, well, you're if, supporting if, the referendums. Okay, I, I, I'm not supporting anything. I'm actually, I'm pointing out the referendums are happening. And yes, there are people there well, who are very happily voting to join Russia. If you want to deny their existence, then you're not living in reality. So I'm asking you, what would you have done to end the eight-year Donbass war? Well, I thank you for bringing up the illegal referendums that are a, a de facto war crime and in clear violation of any of all international law, because that's the same thing they had in Donbass. That's the same thing they had in Crimea. These are these are fake referendums, and you cannot cite them for saying these suddenly. Do you think, place, hey, Greg, hey, yeah, Greg. I'm not done. I'm not no, done. No, no, okay, I don't care. I don't care. You're on my show. Yeah, because you don't have Greg, an answer is why. I, I, I'm asking you a question. Do you think the majority of people in Crimea wanted to be a part of Russia or, or stay with Ukraine? What's your answer to that question? How do we answer that question since there's no way to know? And there was well, you look at the po- look at the polls. Look at the polls that have been taken over history and the attempts before, well, even before 2014, 
by Crimeans to join Russia. That's how many people in Crimea would have said, yeah, we want Russia to invade and take us over and start persecuting the Tartars and make everyone who doesn't agree with them get the hell out, which is what happens in these places. That's what What happens in these places. They hold a referendum during war after the people who have like, oh, my God, the Russians have invaded. Let's get the hell out of here. And then they the, have a the, vote. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. guess. Uh, yeah. These Greg, the problem you face, the problem you face with your narrative, I think, if you'll hear me, is that um, Ukraine is not a monolith. Yes, there are many people inside Ukraine who don't want anything to do with Russia, don't want to be a part of Russia, don't like Russians. The problem is there are millions of people who do speak Russian have a long history with Russia and want closer ties to it. And I think this crisis began in 2014, well, earlier than that, but it really came to a head in 2014 when the U.S. and and its allies forced Ukraine to move into one camp via a coup. And that set off the war we're still dealing with today. And I think if you're not willing to acknowledge the reality of what to do with people inside Ukraine who don't share this uh, nationalist vision of Ukraine that loathes Russians and wants nothing to do with it, then you're not going to be able to solve the problem. And you're not going to be able to entertain things like a peace deal, which could have ended this crisis months ago, if those who were involved are being accurate. And there are multiple sources. And it's not just Putin, by the way, who's saying there was a peace deal. That came from sources close to Zelensky as well. And if you want to ignore all that, that is, uh, that's your right. But I don't think you're living with, in reality. Thank you for no the call. No country is a monolith, is it? Sure. Thank you. Thanks no for the country call. is a monolith. All right, Andrew. Hey, Aaron. Hi there. Uh, I, I have a compliment, a comment, and a question. The compliment is I've heard a lot of people using a term I believe you coined, which is blue anon. I've heard more and more libertarians using it. It's becoming quite popular. I think that's an achievement. You should be proud oh, of it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, in that vein, and since Greg was the last caller, for the people that are challenging the legitimacy of these referendums, I do believe that they should be called what those people are, which is election deniers. Uh, I don't think that they can get around that because that's literally what it is. You can say it's worth denying or not. You can say it's legitimate or not, but they are fundamentally election deniers. So I just find that ironic because that term is used and, you know, used as like a morally loaded phrase when uh, practically, you know, they're doing it too. And all these Blue and on people are going to be election deniers as soon as these referendums complete. So, um, and to be fair, you know, you could challenge the referendum's legitimacy, but the point I think is more important is that they wouldn't tolerate any context of a referendum. They don't want the people of Ukraine to have a vote because they could, you know, suggest solutions like having some kind of a UN intervention where they could, you know, have independent third parties and international observers and UN observers hold votes where there's security and there's not peer pressure by Russia. That that path has never been attempted to be pursued, specifically because there's a fundamental idea that Ukraine's never going to give up anything, whether it's Crimea or what the territory is that they've lost so far. So they don't care about a vote. It doesn't matter whether or not they think this referendum is legitimate or not. They'd never tolerate any kind of a vote on this. Well, yeah. And, you know, to... To underscore that, I I agree. Um, look look at what happened to Zelensky. Zelensky was elected on a platform more than seventy percent of the vote. And what was his mandate? It was to end the Donbas war. A lot of people in the Russian speaking areas that are still under Ukrainian control uh, voted for him. 
because they had hope in him that actually finally he was going to uh, reverse the policies of Poroshenko, who promised to basically rain down terror on the Donbass and make sure that, you know, uh, the children of the Donbass don't go to school uh, until the rebels are defeated uh, and that they would cower in basements. You know, Zelensky promised or hinted at a change from that. And he got a big mandate to end the war. That was a time of a lot of hope among all sides, I think, inside Ukraine. Uh, but what happened? Whatever his intentions were, and, you know, he seems now to me personally to be a pretty cynical figure, but whatever he intended, he was threatened with violence by the far right. I mean, they're the real election deniers. They were denying his mandate, which was to make peace. And they threatened that if you make peace with these rebels, we'll overthrow you. And they threatened that right up until the end, right, the end being uh, the Russian invasion. I, in my new article, I quote uh, a leader of the Democratic Act, which is a far right party, who says that if you sign a peace deal uh, to end the Donbass war, we'll have a million people in the streets and you won't have a government anymore. We're going to overthrow you. So these threats were happening to Zelensky right up until the end. And that's why he, instead of following, uh, following through on his mandate, he bowed to the far right. He bowed to the Azov Battalion, who laughed in his face when he came to the Donbass and tried to get some gestures made toward the rebels. They, they told him to go away. And it's on video still. And it's on video. And he also, in the last few weeks, escalated attacks on the Donbass. And that, you know, can you imagine if a bunch of right-wingers laughed in Biden's face and just disobeyed direct orders on camera? What they yeah, exactly. would be called in America? Now, here's the thing. Yeah. Are the critics – Are your? this wasn't my original question, but I'll sneak it in real quick. If the, if the, do your critics deny that these threats occur, or do they deny that the – because in my world, if the U.S. really wasn't supporting these right-wingers and essentially backstopping them, they would easily be able to assure Alinsky, these guys aren't going to touch you because we'll, we'll take care of them. But what do you think's happening? I think what's obviously is happening is the U.S. is saying you're going to play along or we're going to let the wolves eat you. And it's uh, like, I think that's exactly what it is. And I don't know if you saw maybe with Stephen F. Cohen three years ago. And uh, this was this was three years ago next month in October 2019, when you know Trump's first impeachment was happening after he froze some weapons to Ukraine. And Cohen said that unless the U.S. has Zelensky's back, uh, he has no chance to make peace because he's facing th constant threats from the far right. The U.S. knew this. The U.S. knew that Zelensky needed support if he was going to actually implement his mandate. But instead, I agree with you. I think they used the, the threat of the far right yeah. to continue the Donbass war, to it's continue leverage. to leave Russia. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's how geopolitics works. And people that don't understand this are naive. Um, anyway, yeah. the question I had for you, and be really brief, since people do view Putin as Hitler-esque and, um, you know, there's no moral reason he wouldn't use nukes tactical nukes. Um, and then once this referendum passes and Russia essentially absorbs this territory, it's not that nukes will be the first option. I'm sure there's a lot of steps up the escalatory ladder, but the idea that it's somehow impossible for them to use nukes in any kind of scenario, essentially like from what I guess the perspective is that Putin has given us some kind of red lines and we're deciding not to cross those, but to do everything else, like a sibling in the back of a car with another kid, you know, putting their finger an inch in front of their nose and saying, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you. And then like waiting for a bump in the road, right, to cause an escalation. Um, it's basically the same thing. 
And the idea that there could be no miscalculations or anything that could lead to a nuclear response, like it's somehow impossible. I'd like to know what what do you think even is their reasoning? I've never heard this. I've always heard always oh, bluffing. How do they know this? Like what what reason do they have to believe that when we drop nukes on Japan and that was across the world, this is on their border with a multinational military alliance breathing down their neck? It seems like you have to be unhinged and detached from reality and unable to discuss this to, to really say there's no way that nukes could be used because he's just bluffing. I, I don't understand what, what, yeah, what have that's you heard a, on this. No, well, no, that's a great question. I have no answer for you. I, I think uh, if you're acting rationally, you have to take that threat seriously. But I don't think it is because if it was being t- taken seriously, then how could you possibly pursue all the escalatory policies that the U.S. has pursued. It just doesn't make any sense. So, yeah. no, I don't think they're taking that threat seriously. I hope they are behind the scenes and it's just a tough bullshitting face that's in the media. And, <laughs> but, you know, it, it's impossible to tell with these psychopaths. So thanks for your time. It is. It, it is hard. Thank you. Okay. Letting me talk. So... Yeah, I'm a, I'm a bit with uh, the previous callers, um, Greg, and the one before that. So, yeah, so I don't yell at me, but, yeah, anyways. So, I, you know, first of all, you know, I appreciate that you're calling for negotiations because, uh, like I posted, um, you you were telling people that there was, n- there was nothing to negotiate at the beginning of the war. Um, so now you've changed your mind. So that's, that's gr- not true. No, that's not true. Well, on, on heat, on, on the Chinese television... You repeatedly said there's nothing to negotiate. You said that about five times. No, uh, that's not okay. Well, then you're. Well, you can, look, you'll have to you'll you'll have to send me the uh, okay, thing you're talking about, and you can do it. And you can do it in the and and you can do it in this app. There's a message function. Okay, but, okay, um, okay, okay. I think you misunderstood. Whatever maybe I said, I misunderstood. I, maybe I misunderstood. Maybe I misunderstood. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyways, so um, so in terms of negotiation, so first of all, Ignatius, as far as I'm concerned, um. I've been sort of following him. I, I like reading him, but I think for me, I read him as the representative of the uh, intelligence uh, community in the United States. Um, I, I think he's got he's got direct links. He's said it. He doesn't hide it. Um, so he's kind of a spokesperson for the intelligence community. That's the way I read his stuff always. So so it's kind of interesting that if they, he has these type of positions. So that's one thing. Um, I would, if there are negotiations, I, absolutely the United States shouldn't be part of it. England should not be part of it. France should not be part of it. And Germany should not be part of it. It needs to be an Eastern European thing, you know, with countries or, and Scandinavian, with Finland, you know, the Baltic states, Poland, uh, maybe uh, uh, Hungary, and uh, Ukraine and Russia. It should, I, I think the United States, you know, between Sherman, um, you know, all that gang of uh, diplomats, I think they're terrible negotiators and they don't negotiate. I, you know, I don't, I don't know who these people are, but I don't, I don't think, you know, Sullivan should be involved in negotiations or, or, or you know, any of these, that gang on the right or on the left. Um, it should be like a, because it's an Eastern European thing. And because the, um, I know of you, we have a very different opinion about NATO, but for Eastern Europe, uh, NATO has a totally different, um, thing it's it has a different meaning than for the united states or canada it's it's really about uh defending on one's territory against the terrible thing that's happening in ukraine right now 
there's absolutely no justification for this war. Uh, this, the, you know, I don't want to waste your time, but all the arguments about NATO that you give, I think, can be easily uh, thrown away because it's it just doesn't, you know, for each one of those points, it just you can you go you could give a counterpoint. Um, NATO is not a very strong alliance, or wasn't a very strong alliance until Putin made it a stronger alliance, um, and uh, so he he basically it's it's backfired in his face. Everything that's happened. And I think that uh, it's unfortunate. And I think this war right now, the, with the what what ended the negotiations, and I think I think it's true the negotiations were going well. And I think at the time there was reporting done that uh, basically had all the major points on the negotiations on the table. And I think both sides were pretty close. But I think what ended the negotiations wasn't the United States. It wasn't Boris Johnson. It was Bucha. Bucha happened exactly at the time of the negotiations. There could have been, it could have been some, an oligarch that made it happen. Who knows who was behind Bucha? But that was, I think, just a way to torpedo the negotiations. And it's on the Russians that it was torpedoed. The well, Russians. You're, you're Bucha, assuming, yeah, hold on a second. You're, okay. Uh, first of all, I've never said the invasion is justified. And I'm not sure if you were saying that. I did say that, but in case you were. I didn't say it. I didn't say okay, it. Good, 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 good. What I have said, though, I think where we disagree is that, you know, there's a difference between a justification and a grievance. And I do think Russia had legit grievance and faced legit security threats from a Ukraine that was being incorporated into NATO uh, via, you know, training its troops and placing weaponry there, along with the fact that the U.S. for the last 20 years has uh, torn up vital nuclear treaties and arms control treaties that allow it to place offensive weaponry on Russia's borders, which Russia was trying to address before it invaded. Coupled with the that, fact that you have... That's all not true. Coupled with the fact... Couple, hold on a second. That's not true. Couple, hold on a second. Coupled with the fact that you had a uh, eight-year war that I think was undoubtedly triggered by a U.S.-backed coup. Uh, I think all those were legit security threats to not just Russia itself, but, you know, Russian speaking uh, Ukrainians uh, who were under assault for the last eight years. I think those had those had to be addressed. Now, um, I disagree. Everything you said, I think there's 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 legit resources. Let me let me just finish. And and as for Bucha, I find it very convenient that all of a sudden these Bucha allegations surfaced right at a time when uh, the two sides were close to negotiations. Now, I, agree. You're, I agree. You you, you are you seem certain that Russia was guilty of atrocities there? I have no, no idea what I, happened. I, I'm not, I didn't even say that. I'm, oh, okay. I do think, no, I think it was somebody, I think it's, it's on the Russians that it happened. I think it's some internal job in Russia, somebody who didn't want the negotiations to happen. And undermine the negotiations by it's it's some deep shit crap that happened, and and it was basically to undermine the negotiations. But it's on the Russians because it was on the Russian side that it happened, so they're responsible for what happened, regardless whether it was a, a deep state shit or or whether it wasn't. It's on their it's on them that it happened. Okay, well, so that's and, where, and then that's and now another thing. Just now they discovered a bunch of graves right now. And the yes. UN went there and they investigated and it just came out and you didn't post the UN investigation, but that's a UN investigation. That's the most credible thing we have. And it puts the blame on Russia squarely. Okay. So okay, well, basically, I, and I, I'm I sorry, convenient. No. I, I think body bags is not an issue. It's not a word to use convenience. Okay. 
And, and I agree with Greg, uh, who said that it's up, or Iggy, sorry, it was Iggy, who said, you know, it's up to the Russians to get the hell out of uh, Ukraine, okay? And then you can have negotiations. And right now, the way things are going, it's basically, with Russia, you have to negotiate from strength. And then they'll come to the table, not begging. That's not going to work. Okay. They laugh at this. They right. just well, that's laugh where at I begging. Think you're, okay, and, and I think that attitude is a recipe for more disaster. I'm sorry. Th- yeah, for but Ukraine. That's, so that's we'll disagree on that. I mean, and, and listen, I listen. I haven't looked at these investigations you're talking about. I know that Amnesty International was not allowed to visit the site in Izium, and I and I think look. I have no idea what happened in any of these places. I've never ruled out the possibility that Russia committed these, her, all the horrific atrocities that they're accused of. But I do think these are the kind of things that are, it's very easy to make these allegations, especially during a time of war, and they require vigorous, impartial investigations. I've seen, for example, how, you know, via the OPCW story in Syria, how easily it is to compromise investigations and use allegations of atrocities to pursue political narratives. And uh, I'm just mindful of that. Whenever I see allegations like this being used to undermine diplomacy, I think that's just worth keeping in mind. But it has Doesn't to go both that, ways. It has to go both ways. I agree ways. with that. I agree. And maybe you're right that really this was somebody inside Russia, you know, using their assets to uh, kill negotiations and and sacrifice a lot of uh, innocent Ukrainians toward that. And, and Russians. Uh, maybe and, right. and Russians eventually. I mean, right. that's the yeah, other thing. Right. You know, people use this word, this meme to the last Ukrainian. Hundreds, there are tens of thousands of Russians that died already in this war. That's okay. right. They're being. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, that's right. Yeah. And so, and, and, so resi- it goes, and many and many are resisting it right now. I've heard some horrible stories from inside Russia about people being, you know, sent off to go against their will and trying to flee to avoid conscription. It's a. I get that, but look, okay. it's hard okay. not to say the policy. I'm, I'm foremost concerned with U.S. policy because that's where I live, and I do think it's a major driver of this war, and it's hard not to come to the conclusion that they're fighting Russia to the last Ukrainian when people like Lindsey Graham are openly bragging that Ukraine will fight to the last person. That's a direct quote. So that's really is the yeah, but, openly admitted policy. You know, Medvedev said the same thing. I mean, everybody's using these memes, okay? So to their own advantage. It's a, there's a lot of it as information warfare also. But unfortunately, there's real warfare going on. And yes, there is. Yeah. Anyways, I appreciate it. Hey, thank you for the call. Okay, it's a it's a it's a feisty episode today, which is always great. All right, JC. Hey, it's JC. Hi there. What's up? Um, so wow, I feel kind of breathless being like seventh in line, and then you know you have to stay focused with your question while all this like <laughs> other stuff comes up. So uh, my respect to you for spending uh, you know Sunday just getting yelled at that's that's fine um <laughs> i think like j- just to put a brief yeah no problem just to put a brief like i guess like my personal twist on the discussion uh first would just be like uh, you know i was not someone who was alive during the uh bulk of the cold war so i was born in 92 but uh, wasn't even politically conscious during iraq war but um it's insane to me to relive it all over again and yet just like have no like genetic or like, real memory of how this is, has exactly happened before. That is to say the like domestic attitude that like allows the disbelieving of, you know, the humanity of 
you know, these large superpowers halfway across the world. So like Russia or today, uh, or I should say like the USSR then, uh, Cuba, like I'm half Cuban. So like I live with that contradiction. And then, you know, China and the Russia today, like it's all happening again. So I would just want to take a, a brief respite from the argument and maybe like invoke the sober uh, words of Khrushchev, right, to Kennedy during the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is, you know, this idea of the knot of war uh, that he spoke about when we pull on it. I think back then it was about just like missiles and military technology. And today I think it's the shadow of that, which is NATO and its uh, expansionism really is to me the knot of war that maybe isn't spoken about in such terms as it was by Khrushchev back then which seemed to be very convincing uh, to the, you know, the deep, uh, you know, psychosis that Kennedy and subsequent presidents had to get over, such as Reagan, when they realized like, oh, wait, you mean there is a reasonable actor that's like scared, you know, that is our enemy uh, that we can convince with like unilateral disarmament or, you know, yeah. bold diplomatic moves. I mean, I think that this is, something that we constantly uh, forget. So, sorry, that yeah, was a I little think, bit long. No. I think my, yeah, go ahead. I think it's a great point. To justify warfare on entire countries, you have, you have to portray their leaders as like irrational, you know, uh, genocidal Hitler type figures. I mean, you look at every single go government that's been overthrown by the US, targeted for overthrow. That's always how their leaders are portrayed. You know, Gaddafi, was going to distribute Viagra to his troops to commit mass rape. That was the concoction mm -hmm. of the Obama administration. Uh, you know, um, Saddam Hussein and WMDs and, and all the other allegations that Bush lodged against him. And I've seen it with Syria. To justify, you know, ongoing proxy warfare, bombings and sanctions against Syria, um, which is internally was fighting a, an insurgency dominated by al-Qaeda, which is supposed to be a U.S. enemy. Uh, the U U.S. and its allies had to come up with this cartoonish portrayal of him as just this genocidal dictator who commits chemical weapons attacks at the most inopportune moments for him, like just he, just as he's about to take over yeah. a insurgent-controlled town, or just after Trump announces that the U.S. is giving up on regime change, all of a sudden Assad decides to go ahead and use chemical weapons. It, you know, even though these chemical weapons, by the way, offer no military advantage, and they're and they're not, and he never uses them for some reason against insurgents as they're attacking his forces, but he always uses them as the allegation goes against civilians. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't make any sense. It only makes sense if you're a uh, insurgent trying to get the Western military to intervene on your side, or you're sure. a Western policymaker who's trying to justify ongoing warfare. Sure. I think I think you have to take that lesson into this war with Ukraine and Russia as well. Sure. Um and I'll just like get to hopefully the quick of my, my point, which is, you know, how does this hysteria, uh, and to be fair, I think to our, you know, friends and enemies, uh, you know, on the liberal quote, like unquote left and the center and right of this country in the U S like, to be fair, I think, um, you know, it's impossible to deny that like bad things happen in the world and that there's agency in people like Putin. This is like, of course. In fact, I think it was mentioned by, uh, you know, Greg, previous caller, like, no place is a monolith. So, like, yeah, there is nuance. 
So I think it's really important to try to understand that these leftist positions that seem, uh, you know, insane, insane to them, you know, you could kind of hear how breathless it was getting. Uh, please try to like have the same nuance that like we afford, you know, these so-called, you know, enemies of us. Um, but how, as far as how that gets recreated, this like domestic uh, mind prison, where we just live under these contradictions of like, you know, again, I'll, I'll mention the like, Cuban affairs, you know, so long as America operates, say, Guantanamo Bay, and then has Cuba on like a state sponsored of terrorism, which, you know, terrorism, a tactic, right, not an ideology, like, as long as we have this, like, exist, and then like recent statements by our press secretary about like, why that's important. And then it, it really makes it impossible to have that. And then also be seriously like, hey, it's up to Russia to just pull the fuck out of Ukraine. And uh, I mean, if you really think it's that simple, I mean, it's really, it's really not. It highlights how you can't really form a cohesive view of the world if you're only digesting, I think what's being given to you by you know, the media outlet in this country. Uh, and so the particulars about the Ukrainian invasion, like leading up to it, I think a lot of people got what, you know, their critics would love to characterize as black eyes for saying, you know, oh, this is hysteria about the Russian mobilization. And then they invaded. And I mean, like, yeah, that that certainly happened. And it was strange. And it was a, a whiplash for many people who had the audacity to have a immune response to the rhetoric of war being given to us on like national TV. And I think that's a really important immune response. And it, it really highlighted to me, like, why is it that whenever we get like leaks, whenever we get news from the front and unnamed sources, I mean, it's always about like secret military commanders in Russia talking about like, hey, the war that is or isn't going to happen, it's going to happen like this, that or the other. You'll remember there's just like a myriad of just kind of like military based reports, but maybe like 10% of the world coverage was about, at least in the West, leaders going to uh say moscow and like making actual overages to putin i remember it was uh late uh what was it january where this this letter that was that was sent to the u.s by putin a very direct letter from moscow saying like hey man three things one of them is in capital letters nato do you want to move with us on any of this and then yeah. they were all like soundly rejected. And then yeah, the war yeah. happened like two weeks later. Yeah. So those like proposals, 90, yeah, those proposals 90%, were sent. 90% yeah, the, of our the, diet is like the military like leaks. But yes. how come there isn't like a direct line from people leaking the like diplomatic cables? That, like, Absolutely. Hey, there's, a, there's a secret plan to have a, like, how come we don't get that leading up into the war? So right. that people aren't like, hey, Russia's going to invade and you're an idiot if you don't predict this in the next week versus... A majority right. of people. Okay, we're gonna, JC. Say, thank you for the yeah. thank you for the call. We're going to move on. So thank you, you for the call. It. But yeah, yeah, there there was Appreciate a there was uh, proposals submitted by Russia to the U.S. and NATO in December. They're very detailed, and on all the core issues, the U.S. and NATO basically said no. And I talk about that in my new article. Okay, Heidi. Hi. Yeah, I wasn't even going to call in until uh, Greg. <laughs> But I, I don't really have much to contribute to the conversation. I, I like uh, I really admire the way that you're honest and um, fair 
you know, to, to both sides or all sides in this. Hey. Uh, but my, my thing is, uh, I get in arguments online on LinkedIn and YouTube sometimes and people like the things that I bring up, which by the way, you're an inspiration because a lot of them, uh, a lot of it is information that I got from listening to you, um, and reading your articles. But, uh, one of the things that I haven't heard yet, well, cause one of the major things that I know, you know, through a personal friend is, is the NATO encirclement. But another thing that I, I bring up and nobody has a response to it is the bioweapons facilities that we know because of uh, Victoria Newland's testimony and Hunter Biden's laptop, you know, that's right on the border of Russia too. And I understand that you don't see uh, the justification for the invasion, but I certainly do. I, I'm like full on in their corner because to me, it seems like the clearest case of self-defense that and national security that I've ever seen in my life. And if, if they want to say, oh, NATO is nothing, look at what they did to Iraq. You know, and look at what the whole thing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, well, I agree with you on, on the, the point about NATO. And, you know, as for the bioweapons labs, I know Newland admitted that her answer was very uh, uh, conspicuous because she didn't deny the existence of bioweapons facilities. She just said that there are biological facilities in, in Ukraine, but didn't really give a direct answer. But I still don't see that as you know, sufficient evidence that there was some you know, bi- U.S.-involved bioweapons program inside Ukraine. That's been alleged. I personally haven't seen the evidence for it yet. So I don't personally, I, I don't... Um, see that claim as you do but but you know as as with all these things anything is possible you know i heard i heard wait wait, i heard a rumor and and you can just i'll leave it at that that russia intends to present evidence at the next u.n security all right well let's see i I look forward to it i look forward to it thank you okay take care you too vladimir And Vladimir, if you're there, there's a uh, mute button. Yes, hi. Yeah, yeah, I think I was able to finally unmute myself. Hi, um, Aaron. Yes, I actually, just like Heidi, I was not going to call in until I heard Greg and then Al. And uh, I uh, I do happen to come from Donbass originally. That's where I'm from. Um, I live in the United States. I have traveled to Donbass in 2016 and 2018. And I still have family living there. Talk to them every day twice a day in the morning and in the evening, checking if everyone's alive and if everyone's okay. And Greg, I don't know if you realize, but you live in one of the most propagandized societies on this planet. And uh, you mentioned, I think a number of times, same with you, Al, I just, I guess I wanted to say to, to address you guys, right? What you think really is relevant and you don't know what's happening there, neither do I. I talk to my relatives, I hear what happens there from them. I see footage from my hometown that is being shelled and terrorized by the Ukrainian regime, has been for eight years now, and uh, it's being bombed every day. You don't hear about it on the news here in the United States, and I know that because I live here. You don't hear about it on the news in Western Europe because I talk to people who live there as well. But maybe, maybe, I think, instead of claiming that you stand with people of Ukraine, who are being pitted against the Russians who grew up together. I happen to be half Russian, half Ukrainian. My mom is Ukrainian, my dad was Russian. And my mom was hiding from Ukrainian shells. Who, my mom, who is a 100% Ukrainian herself, 
right? And try to prove it to you. I don't know how else to say it. I, I hear people, I see these flags being waved, Ukrainian flags, but what do you know about that? What do you know about the regime that's there? I liked Ukraine. I liked living there at one point. I identified with a lot of things there, but what I see going on now, I, I can't support that. And um, when you when you say that you stand with people from Ukraine, maybe you should just ask your own government to give you answers of what the hell it's doing across the ocean, halfway across the world, again, pitting nations against each other, stoking war and fire and disarray. I do not support war. I have not supported the Iraq war. I did not support the war in Yugoslavia. I did not support the war in Syria. I don't support this war. But maybe you should just be humble and admit that you don't really know what's happening instead of saying you think. What you think is irrelevant again. You don't know what happened in Bucha. You have no idea what's happening in Donbass right now. And yes, there are these referenda that are being held, but nobody's making people vote under the barrel of the gun. And I can assure you of that. And uh, many people living in Donbass do view Russia as a liberating force. Whether it's true, whether it's correct or not, I have no idea. And the atrocities are happening on both sides. And I can tell you that the Ukrainian regime is committing atrocities in Donbass every day and has been for quite some time, way from way before February 24th, earlier this year. I just wanted to say that. Vladimir, thanks so much for sharing that. And, you know, um, you expressed uh, exponentially better than I ever could why the this current framing of the conflict, the way it's discussed here in the U.S. is so skewed. It, it's predicated on denying the existence of people like your family, you know, who have been living under uh, a horrible war for the last eight years and being, you know, attacked with U.S. weapons and uh, and U.S. support. And those are the kinds of uh, unworthy victims that Chomsky and Herman talk about in manufacturing consent. We're only allowed to focus in our system on worthy victims, which are victims of our enemies, but we can't focus on unworthy victims, which are the people that we're responsible for terrorizing. And uh, this rhetoric about standing with Ukraine, it's predicated on erasing those Ukrainians who don't share the proxy war policy. Just as when people in the West would say we have to stand with Syrians, they were erasing the vast majority of Syrians who didn't want to live under Al-Qaeda and other sectarian death squads. But that's who the U.S. was was siding with, as Jake Sullivan put it. So um, thank you. And I, it's it's so unfortunate that voices like yours are completely excluded in U.S. media, because if people could hear the perspective of those in the Donbass and what they've been living with, not just now in this war, but for the last eight years, I think public attitudes would be different. But we're just not allowed to hear that perspective. Yeah, and thank you, thank you, Aaron. All right. I think that's a great place to end it. So apologies to those callers who I didn't get to today. I hope you'll call back in next time. And I'll be back here tomorrow with Katie Halper. Uh, as we do useful idiots, but at a later time, it's going to be at 1.30 PM Eastern time. Uh, that's tomorrow on here. Uh, bye everybody.